Howdy, howdy. Senior editor Mackenzie Taylor here on the Texans Weekly Roundup podcast. This week, our team discusses the second anniversary of Governor Abbott's COVID-19 disaster declaration, the head of the Texas military department being switched out amid controversy, a spike in youth suicides in the pandemic years, a pro-gambling pack donating to Texas candidates, a recount being called for by a Texas House challenger, senators criticizing the White House over Ukraine response, two Democrats vying for the lieutenant governor nomination, and the Republican runoff for attorney general heating up. If you have questions for our team, email us at editor at the texan.news. We'd love to answer your questions on our podcast. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Howdy folks, Mackenzie Taylor here with Brad Johnson, Daniel Farrand, Hayden Sparks, and Isaiah Mitchell, who's joining us remotely. We're all ready to go talk about the news. Brad once again has his March Madness up on his phone just to make sure he's up on the game while we're recording. Of course. Yes. What else would I do? That's a good question. I'm not sure. But I did make fun of you last week for it on Twitter. So I figured I, I would just ashamed. continue the <laughs> continue the trend. Hayden and Daniel, do you all care about March Madness whatsoever? Um, I am a huge sports ball fan and I I follow it very closely. Mm-hmm. I was actually telling Hayden earlier today that I'm considering uh, becoming a sports ball commentator because yes. sports wow. ball is so, uh, I care about it so much. I support all the best teams and. Um, like, I'm going to get grilled for saying what I just yes said. Yes, you are. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you are. Who, uh, what teams do you root for, Hayden? Um, the green team and the blue team. <laughs> And my blood boil. Oh my gosh. I think, I think they had a, a great season last um in the last basketball round. Yeah. Round? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you this. It's not Mac, easy to make Brad mad and, and you you're are, you're lucky I'm here today because in the Johnson household the first two days of March Madness is basically a holiday. So <laughs> You're welcome for Thank taking you. one for the team. I really do appreciate my you coming job to that your I'm job. To <laughs> <laughs> I will say that March Madness is not the only thing Brad has been watching today. He also turned on The Price is Right. Are you serious? Because it was on before the game started. Oh. That's a, that's a likely story. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like friendly fire. You just got caught in the... I just turned it on early. That way I didn't forget. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Why is it an accusation to be watching the price is right? (laughs) Oh, it sounds like someone here is a price of right. The price is right. I can't English. Isaiah, are you a price is I can't either. Why is that hard to say? (laughs) Why are you? Are you a price is right fan? I've never seen a single minute of the rice is pie. (laughs) 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 Oh man. This is quite quite good well let's go ahead and start doing our jobs and talking about the news brad you can keep us up who's playing right now let's not let's just make fun of brad watching march madness the whole time <laughs> right now, michigan is playing colorado state oh this is a big game then for you yes it is okay well which is why i'm watching godspeed but it's not going well i'm so sorry it's not going well <laughs> i'm so sorry so if i if i just stop watching that and focus more on the podcast you'll know that the game is i'll just out of reach i'll just read the room yeah okay and I won't bring it up. <laughs> I'll leave it alone. On that note, Daniel, we're going to start with you. It has been two years since Texans felt the effects of government lockdown. Uh, that shutdown was ordered by Governor Abbott, and it came on March 19th of 2020. Crazy to think that that was already two years ago. Um, but about a week earlier, he issued something else that has been the focus of a lot of attention since. What was that? Yes. If you remember back two years ago, things were going at kind of like a rapid pace. There were a lot of local governments, uh, different cities in in Texas that were shutting down, having different orders. Um, I don't remember the specific dates for all of those uh, towns, but... Uh, Before Governor Abbott issued his statewide uh, lockdown order that prohibited social gatherings of more than 10 people, it uh, forced restaurants to close down to uh, take out only uh, or drive through. Uh, and it did a bunch of other things. 
before that, he issued a disaster declaration on March 13th. Uh, this disaster declaration is something that is issued under Chapter 418 of the Texas Government Code, um, which is the section code called the Texas Disaster Act. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is uh, kind of the underpinning law that has uh, allowed Governor Abbott to issue uh, all of his executive orders that are tied to COVID-19. Uh, and those are orders, whether it's, you know, the, the ones that were like the lockdown one at the beginning or the ones later on where he's saying local governments can't issue mask mandates. Um, so that has kind of been the basis of that. Uh, the thing about disaster declarations is that in order for them to stay in effect, they have to be renewed every 30 days. Uh, so every month, Governor Abbott has consecutively uh, renewed his disaster declaration for COVID-19. And it is still in effect to this day, uh, unless suddenly while we're recording this podcast and before it gets, goes out, decides to end <laughs> it. But I don't expect that to happen. In like 20 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what are some of the ways that Abbott's response to COVID shifted throughout the pandemic? So, uh, if you remember back at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, things were shifting quite a bit. You had the initial lockdown in March 19th, uh, 2020. Then you had the uh, more federal government push for everybody to stay home, to have the 15 days to slow the spread. About a month after the 15 days started, um, we were still in the 15 days for, for quite some time. Um, case numbers <laughs> were not skyrocketing uh, nearly as much as people had anticipated at that point. Uh, and so things looked like they were uh, really under control uh, at around the beginning of May. There were, of course, a lot more cases than, uh, you know, the 30 when Governor Abbott issued his uh, disaster declaration to begin with. Um, but uh, it was not, you know, hospital rooms were not filling up to the brim, uh, as had been predicted by a lot of people. Um, and so at that point, Governor Abbott started rolling back some of his regulations throughout May. Uh, and uh, also, as he was beginning to issue these executive orders to open Texas, um, he actually included some uh, provisions in his code saying that uh, local governments could not issue mask mandates on individuals. Now, in about June of 2020, uh, midway through, as COVID cases were actually starting to go on the rise, uh, and we were seeing more and more hospitaliza hospitalizations across the state, uh, that's when his uh, stance kind of began to shift. And so uh, about midway through June, uh, Bear County Judge Nelson Wolf discovered a loophole uh, in the uh, his executive order. And he's like, we're not going to issue mask mandates on individuals. We're going to issue them on businesses to issue them on individuals. And so uh, Governor Abbott came out after that saying this was totally acceptable and actually all part of the plan all along. And Nelson like Wolf it was a hidden gem for local officials this. to yes. find. Yeah. Uh, now, one of the interesting things uh, at that point, uh, the governor did say uh, during an interview, he said, quote, we want to make sure that individual liberty is not infringed upon by government and hence government cannot require individuals to wear masks. Uh, that was said in June of 2020. If you remember in July of 2020, right before uh, July 4th, he issued a another executive order infringing upon the rights of individuals and requiring them to wear masks. Um, <clears throat> so that was kind of an interesting, very big, clear, obvious flip-flop on policies. Yeah. Now, when the legislative session started a year ago, or, you know, mm -hmm. give or take a couple months, regardless, the legislature convened. The big topic at hand in large part was the TDA, the Texas Disaster Act, and mm -hmm. potential reforms that could be enacted by the legislature. Did anything happen legislatively to change the Disaster Act? So there were some small changes that were made uh, to the Texas Disaster Act. Uh, there were different uh, constitutional amendments that we saw with respect to uh, whether it be essential caregivers or... Um, kind of protecting churches or guns. Uh, there were different things like that, small little policies uh, that were basically codifying what Governor Habit had done throughout the pandemic and kind of his response to it. Uh, now, there were a couple different approaches that the legislature attempted to make uh, to address the Texas Disaster Act more broadly and greatly reform it. Uh, there was a lot of concern from some lawmakers of saying, hey, like, you know, back when this pandemic started, it was like right after the, the year after a, a legislative session. So lawmakers didn't have an opportunity to weigh in uh, since lawmakers can only convene at the request of the governor. If the governor didn't actually 
call them into session, they'd have no way to actually put a check on these executive orders that he was issuing. And so Senator Brian Birdwell uh, from Granbury, a Republican, uh, offered legislation that would require greater oversight uh, for these disaster des- declarations, uh, particularly the ones that were on a large widespread scale. Um, now, this would apply to you know things that apply happen statewide, which doesn't actually happen too often. Um, there are uh, situations, of course, in the past few years that we've seen this where like the pandemic or the statewide freeze. Uh, but beyond that, the largest ones are usually about hurricanes, which cover pretty vast amount of um, counties. All that to say, uh, this legislation was approved by the Senate, but it went to the House and died there. In the House, you had Representative Dustin Burroughs pushing forward another piece of legislation uh, that would have kind of essentially just codified Abbott's response again uh, to the pandemic uh, as it was originally introduced. Then it kind of shifted and changed to this thing where it would actually go in and add another provision in state code next to the Texas Disaster Act called the Texas Pandemic Act uh, or Pandemic Disaster Act. Mm-hmm. And this would uh, specifically outline how the government was supposed to respond to pandemics. And there would be some legislative oversight in that, uh, I think, for like 90 or 120 days after a a disaster declaration for pandemic was declared. Uh, So the House passed that version of his bill. Uh, It went over to the Senate. Uh, Birdwell took it up and replaced that legislation again with his own legislation saying, no, like we need to have something for all disasters. That addresses this, yeah. That addresses everything, not just uh, pandemic specifically, because this is a a major portion of code that could be used in other ways. Uh, And so the Senate passes that again. It goes back to the House. Birdwell, or Burroughs in the House rejects that change. And so then it's basically dead. It goes to a conference committee, but nothing came out of it. Yeah. It really became a House versus Senate battle with the House appearing to be a little bit more pro-Abbott's pandemic response. That's Mm -hmm. how it appeared to the public. And then the Senate being a little bit more willing to rein in the powers of that particular part of code. Yeah. Right. That's kind of how it ended up looking. Yes. Um, which was very interesting to watch. Who knows? We've talked about whether or not this will be addressed in the next session. We doubt it. I think that the, a lot of the political capital there has been um, squandered. It probably won't be brought up again. But regardless, it's still nothing's changed there. And the governor's mm-hmm. response to COVID is still um, protected in that portion of code. Well, Daniel, thank you for that. Brad, this week, uh, continuing to talk about the governor. Governor Abbott made a change at the Texas Military Department. What are the details? So Major General Thomas Swelzer, not sure exactly how to pronounce that. That sounds good to me. Good enough. Um, <laughs> give enough. the college try there. <laughs> uh, he was appointed to head up the Texas Military Department, which is the parent agency of the Ar- Texas Army National Guard, the Air National Guard, and the State Guard. It oversees all of those. Um, he succeeds Major General Tracy Norris, whose term expired in fe- February, um, and she was not reappointed to the position. Uh, Governor Abbott said, General Swelzer brings a wealth <laughs> of military experience to this new role, and I am confident that he will uphold the integrity of the Texas Military Department. Um Swelzer most recently served as the Deputy Adjutant General air for the texas national guard um he went to the air force academy graduated i think it was in 94 um it's sometime in the 90s and served in various capacities in the air force and then the air national guard um and now he takes over the texas military department now what's the importance of this what's the surrounding context why is this particularly noteworthy yeah so tmd has been overseeing operation lone star they oversee a lot of stuff But the chief thing right now is Operation Lone Star, which is the border security mission initiated by Abbott last year in response to the spike in border crossings. And we saw that really, um, really jump, really come into national attention when that massive caravan of Hayden, was it was it Haitians? It was mostly Haitians, Haitians about 30,000 in Del Rio that were basically camping underneath the international bridge in Del Rio. Yeah. So um, the TMD was in addition to border patrol on the federal side, they were in charge of um, a lot of the, the organization and, and, and just generally the response to illegal immigration. But over the course of the last year, Norris has been criticized from different fronts um, from generally the, um, the, the more left side, but also this has been, 
the criticism from like Abbott's primary opponents as well um, on troop morale and allegedly poor conditions at the border. Um, troops not getting paid on time. Um, troops uh, just not having the resources necessary to um, complete the mission. Things like accusations like that on the on the more on the right side of the political spectrum right-leaning side um there's also the criticism that the tmd and its branches are complying with the federal vaccine mandate right and um that has caused a lot of members to be at least at risk of getting kicked out of the national guard so um norris has been under fire uh for various things for a while and it's not too surprising that she wasn't renewed reappointed um but that was made official this week and it's moving in a new direction yeah well thank you for that we'll continue to monitor it but the governor appoints a lot of people to different positions and this one was particularly noteworthy because of all the reasons you listed so thanks for following that for us isaiah let's go to you a state agency released a report at the beginning of this month regarding the deaths of children due to abuse or neglect how does this relate to the pandemic yeah, so this report came out of the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services. Um, if y'all aren't, if you're not familiar with them, they run the foster care system. If you report child abuse or neglect, they're the authorities that investigate that, and if necessary, remove the child from the family. That's that's their gig. And um, every year, they release a report on maltreatment deaths. So these are from abuse or neglect. Overall, uh, in 2019, maltreatment deaths increased. And then they decreased in 2020 and 21. So that's some good news. When we look closer, we see an uptick in deaths by physical abuse in 2019, followed by a downward trend, always good news, but also a much bigger spike in deaths by neglect in 2019, which continued to rise in 2020 before falling in 2021, though still not back down to 2018 levels or pre-pandemic levels. In addition, the DFPS notes an, an unusual rise in suicides over both of the last two years as well as an increase in the share of kids aged 10 to 17 in the overall count of maltreatment deaths. So <clears throat> when I say unusual, if, if the number of suicides, these are suicides, let me back up. The deaths that they track in these reports are maltreatment deaths that they have investigated. So this isn't a total count of all the youth suicides in the state. What happens is that if there is a, a child that commits suicide and there is an allegation of abuse or neglect involved in that death, and the DFPS investigates, and then that death is included in this report. In the years leading up to the pandemic, each of those years had fewer than six youth suicides, which means that they weren't even tracked on their own little, you know, column at the chart, to put it one way, because they mask the data under, if it's under, if it's like six or under suicides to protect the children's privacy, then the data is not elaborated. But in 2019, 2020, and 2021, um, there were above, excuse me, there were 13 suicides in 2021 that were included in the report and fiscal year 2020, there were eight. So in the years 2016 to 2019, again, there were under six. So this is something that actually the report noted was unusual, was this rise in youth suicides. Something else is that the share of kids under the age, under school age, like under three years tend to con- constitute the majority of maltreatment deaths in Texas. However, older kids in the 10 to 17-year-old category have constituted an increasing share of the maltreatment deaths throughout the state. And so we've got these charts visualized, the data visualized in the article, and you can take a look at that. Yeah. And notice that the bar representing that age group has steadily grown in 2019, 2020, and 2021. Um, we're loath to, you know, the whole correlation versus causation warning. We're, we're keeping that in mind. And so, um, you know, we're loath to, to say, oh, the pandemic has, you know, incited these suicides and these deaths among teenagers. Um, but that is an element that the DFP has noted in the official report. And um, it's, it's a bit, little bit of a vague illusion. But uh, the report just says that the impact of the past two years, as they put it on youth, is emerging in the data. And so it's a pretty unusual rise in, in suicides and in deaths by neglect, which had this incredibly high spike, especially compared to deaths by physical abuse which have decreased every year since 2019. So um, the pandemic, anyway, um, we'll leave these, leave this data up to interpretation for the readers. Certainly. But, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Proceed with caution as always when interpreting data, but there is a correlation. Now, how closely does this uh, state data correlate with federal data? Well, as I noted, um, the deaths that are included in these reports are not the complete count of suicides in all of Texas for children. These are just deaths that were that have some kind of allegation of maltreatment that caused the DFPS to intervene and investigate. The, the feds, specifically the CDC, do count all suicides, and you can differentiate that by age group in a, in a CDC data tool. However, this data does not actually go up to fiscal year 2021 as the DFPS report does. What we can see, um, it, it goes up to 2020. And with that data, what we can see is that in, if you take uh, about a chunk, a chunk of about a decade um, and look at recent years, uh, in the article, the chart that we've got in there starts at 2013 and lasts to 2020, the most recent year for which that is available. And in that span of time, Texas youth suicides hit a peak in 2020. And the year 2019, there, were, there was an uptick from 2018 in the number of suicides. We can also differentiate by county. Um, and if we look at, it, again, like the DFPS, they mask the data if there aren't enough suicides to protect the children's privacy. So the CDC's threshold is 10. If a given county in a given year has fewer than 10 suicides, then it just doesn't show up on the county data. But um, we can see results greater than 10 suicides per year in Bear, Collin, Dallas, Harris, Montgomery, Tarrant, and Travis counties. And so in four of those seven major counties that have federal data available, youth suicides in 2020 rose from 2019. And in three of those counties, Dallas, Tarrant, and Travis County, youth suicides actually peaked in 2020 in that same span of time, beginning in 2013. So there was a precipitous increase in suicides in a lot of areas of Texas and across Texas as a whole in 2020 and, you know, the thick of the pandemic and the pandemic response. Well, Isaiah, thank you for breaking that down. And as uh, as you noted, folks, make sure to go to the Texan.news and check out all the data there. Um, there are very helpful charts and graphs to that um, just kind of help interpret the data and give you all the details you need to uh, draw your own conclusions. But Zay, thanks for breaking that down for us. Hayden, what is the Texas Sands PAC and where is its funding coming from? Well, believe it or not, it's not a sandbox manufacturer. <laughs> um, it, <laughs> thank you for that. I appreciate I, the, the pity it laugh. It made me think about the skate park that was covered in sand during the <laughs> pandemic. Oh, yes. We talked a lot about that yesterday. Um, Texas Sands Pack is um, really a child of Las Vegas Sands Corporation in uh, out in Las Vegas, Nevada. A child. Um, I don't know if child's the right word, but it's um, <laughs> a creation of, of Las Vegas Sands that um, was formed in January to move along the efforts in Texas to legalize what they call integrated resorts, i.e. casinos with other uh, venues and amenities around them. Uh, Texas Sands received all of its funding, all $2.3 million of its funding from Dr. Miriam Adelson, who is the widow of Sheldon Adelson, who was the CEO of Las Vegas Sands and a prominent Trump supporter. In fact, the Adelson family has been a supporter of Republicans over the years. Uh, Dr. Adelson, as I mentioned, gave $2.3 million to this political action committee, uh, which they in which the the PAC and when I say PAC that's PAC Political Action Committee, uh, which was used in part to fund Texas legislative races in uh, prior to the primary election. Got it. Now let's talk through you know who those donations were made out to. Well, just to um, you know set the stage for for who these donations went to. These were mostly people in competitive races. They were incumbents. They were. Uh, can some of them were uh, candidates challenging incumbents, but they were mostly incumbents on both sides of the aisle. Uh, there were three senators that received money, Donna Campbell, Angela Paxton, and John Whitmer. Again, Campbell and Paxton are both Republican. Whitmer is a Democrat. Speaker Phelan, for instance, was not on this list, but he didn't have a competitive primary. He was uh, all by himself on the ballot. And Democratic caucus leader Chris Turner also didn't receive any money, but Again, he's in District 101. He was the only only Democrat running. He didn't have a primary opponent. Um, but also receiving money was Alma Allen, Steve Allison, Ernest Bales, uh, Cecil Bell, Retta Bowers, Dustin Burroughs, 
Giovanni Capriglione, Harold Dutton, Mary Gonzalez, Ryan Guillen, who, and Guillen, of course, switched from Democrat to Republican recently, Justin Holland, Lacey Hull, Kyle Casal, Ken King, Brooks Landgraf, Jeff Leach, Ray Lopez, Andy Murr, Claudia Ordaz Perez, John Rainey, Richard Raymond, Ron Reynolds, Mike Schofield, Brian Slayton, David Spiller, Aaron Zwiener, Phil Stevenson, and Stan Lambert were the candidates who received money and then went on to either advance to a runoff or win their primary outrightly. Um, and and how many total was that really fast? That It's more than a couple dozen. I think it. I think it's about 30. I'm okay, sorry, I don't have it. the number off the top of my head. But there was also a, a candidate in Senate District 14, Angelia Orr, uh, who won the, pardon me, that's Pete Flores and SD 14, who also received money and then made the Republican runoff. And then Angelia Orr, who won the Republican primary in HD 13. Um, and then Representative Tan, Tan Parker uh, also won the uh, nomination for SD 12. Um, so those are those are candidates who are not running for their same office, but they're running for a different office um, or they're not incumbents and they're just running for the um for the officer seeking. So they were successful. And I know that there were uh, a few or a, a couple that, that received money and were not successful, like Art, Art Fierro, um, you know, during redistricting, Claudia Ordaz Perez and Art Fierro were drawn into the same district. And, and so they kind of had a, a, a friendly competition with each other, Democratic primary out there in, in El Paso, and Ordaz Perez was successful. But um, Fierro also received uh, money from, from Texas Sands. So that's an overview of some of the... Um, the candidates who received money from this new new pack. Now, what's the likelihood that we even see casinos in Texas in the near future? Well, they definitely, Las Vegas Sands, Miriam Adelson, uh, definitely want it to happen. Rob uh, Goldenstein um, recently, pardon, I think it's just Goldstein, um, recently told um, the Las Vegas Review Journal that they're hoping to break ground in 2024 on these integrated resorts if it's passed in 2023. And just to kind of give you an idea of the uh, the weight of Adelson, the Adelson family's um, support and and their 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 scope of influence, they actually own uh, virtually the Las Vegas Review Journal. Um, so this newspaper that oh is reporting gosh. on this issue actually belongs to the Adelson family um, and Las Vegas Sands. So they uh, definitely have a lot of uh, money, a lot of influence. Miriam Adelson is the I would think the thirty sixth wealthiest uh, person in the world wow. uh, according to Forbes estimates. She uh, has a net worth of of. Uh, uh, something like $30 billion. It is uh, definitely, um, they have a lot of influence. $38.2 billion is the estimate for Mary Madison's net worth. They would need to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot in 2023, which is what they're attempting to do, to authorize integrated resorts, casino gambling, in perhaps the DFW Metroplex. There were proposals to have that um, authorized for a limited number of, of casinos with a, a dollar amount for investments. Um, of course, while this this effort has a lot of money behind it and there are lawmakers who may be interested, it hasn't really been center stage. It hasn't really been a huge debate because uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick shut it down in February. He said that's not going to see the light of day last legislative session. And uh, while it may not be that people have been speaking out against it a lot. It also hasn't been in the in the debate a lot. 2023 may be the year that it starts to get more media coverage and and people look at it a, a bit more. But I know there are groups such as Texas Values and the Baptist General Convention of Texas, well-connected local organizations that are opposed to this and will advocate advocate against it. And it also goes to that clash between uh, in, a, in a state that is controlled by Republicans, the clash between more traditional conservative social values and the the capitalism and liberty type conservatives that are are would that that would be their overriding values and they would be more amenable to this. And yeah. there's some polling that suggests, or there was some polling last year that suggested that Texas voters would be open to this and and. Um, it may be a very interesting debate next year if the legislature decides to get to it. And they're spending a lot of money in Texas, which is fascinating. Makes sense. The market's huge for them. Makes all the sense in the world. But it really comes down to whether state leaders have the appetite for it, right? 
So we'll see what happens. Thank you, Hayden. Isaiah, back to you. Uh, there was a big spike in the number of Republican incumbents facing primary challenges in 2022 in the Texas House. And one of those uh, Republican representatives had the narrowest primary victi- victory. My gosh, I can't speak today. I couldn't say potential. I can't say victory. I'm just having, I'm struggling. Just this, don't go on the rightest price. This, the rightest price. <laughs> that does make me feel better. This, this coffee's not hell. I need, I need to drink more coffee. Regardless, Isaiah, the narrowest victory um, out of any sitting Texas House member was Lynn Stuckey's. Uh, tell us about his primary and where we're at now. Yes, as you so succinctly noted, Lynn Stuckey <laughs> had a really, really slim margin of victory, 0.27%, amounting to about 100 votes. Uh, when I checked, when I wrote this article, the Secretary of State's office uh, showed him leading his opponent, Andy Hopper, or competitor Andy Hopper, by 101 votes. Obviously, the county, or excuse me, the state gets its data from the county. And um, Andy Hopper, who announced that he was going to request a recount, says that absentee ballots, as they rolled in, had narrowed that gap to just 88 votes. So Hopper's requesting a recount. Um, This is the slimmest primary for an incumbent to win in the Texas House so far, Republican or Democrat. Uh, Second place is Dutton. There's a bit of trivia, I believe. his margin of victory was 0.85% if I remember correctly. But um, yeah, this is, this happens from year to year with cycles. And uh, as you mentioned, 2022 is a big year for Republican incumbents in the Texas house trying to stave off challengers. And um, he is stuck. He was just, you know, 88 to hundred votes away from a runoff or not a runoff from losing. There are only two <laughs> candidates in the primary. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, what is the matchup here? Or what's the breakdown in terms of, you know, the characterization of these two candidates? It's really the classic establishment versus grassroots mold. If we look at a lot of the other heuristics, you know, that you can use to characterize candidates in Texas politics. So in his press release that he put out announcing that he would request a recount, Hopper accused Stucky of being a moderate, noting among other things his F grade on uh, the Texans for Fiscal Responsibility Index scorecard. Uh, his middling position in the Texas GOP, according to Mark P. Jones's ranking of House members from most liberal to most conservative, and his acceptance of a whole lot of money from Texas House Speaker Dade Phelan. And so associations with Phelan obviously invite, uh, in certain Republican circles, accusations of being a moderate. Um, Stucky was also endorsed by Greg Abbott, which again, in some circles, carries the same accusation, as well as the Texas Medical Association, the Texas Hospital Association. Texas Alliance for Life and the Texas State Teachers Association. Brad uh, wrote a good back mic a little while ago comparing the endorsements of Texas Alliance for Life to Texas Right to Life. There's a similar dichotomy there between Stuckey and Hopper and the Republican Party in general in Texas. So um, Hopper, on the other hand, uh, has the endorsements of Gun Owners of America, Grassroots America, the Texas Homeschool Coalition, and Texas Eagle Forum. Two that I would point out there is that you know, having the homeschool coalition on Hopper's side versus the Texas State Teachers Association on Stucky's side is very illustrative. So, yeah, certainly. And I believe we do have confirmation from the Texas GOP, the parties run the elections and the primaries, um, that the recount is going to be moving forward. So we will certainly keep an eye on that. Isaiah, thanks for following that and covering it for us. Daniel. Right. And just to clarify oh, yes. my verbal mistake from earlier, uh, there are two candidates in the primary. So a simple majority will decide the the nominee at this point. And so there's there's no runoff going on. That was a verbal mistake on my part. There we go. Got it. Um, well, wonderful. Thank you, Isaiah. Daniel, on Wednesday, the Ukrainian president addressed members of Congress amid the ongoing attacks his country is facing from Russia. What did Zelensky have to say? Yes, Vladimir Zelensky, <clears throat> um, when he addressed uh, Congress, uh, he, he addressed them virtually. Uh, he spoke for about 20 minutes. And included in that, he shared also a video uh, that was kind of comparing Ukraine before and after uh, Russia had attacked them. Uh, a lot of his uh, speech was kind of uh, trying to appeal to Americans uh, by comparing the attacks uh, that Ukraine is facing currently from Russia with the attacks that the U.S. has faced previously, such as the uh, Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor in World War II and also uh, the attacks on 9-11 uh, across our country. So 
those uh, two events was kind of what he compared it to. He also made some other allusions uh, to like Mount Rushmore and some, some other um, more American things. Uh, now, as far as the things that he was requesting Congress to kind of support Ukraine uh, by doing different things, uh, the first thing that he asked, and everybody was kind of expecting this, and I think there's a lot of pushback from this in Congress and uh, more broadly, he did ask uh, again for a no-fly zone, uh, which would essentially – require American forces or uh, allied forces to uh, establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine to prevent Russian planes from flying over. In order to enforce that, of course, you have to have U.S. military there actively in combat with Russian fighter jets, uh, which people are saying that would obviously escalate things quite a bit. <laughs> That's the, uh, yes. And having a direct conflict between two uh, world powers, Russia and uh, the U.S. or uh, EU uh, troops. Now, the other thing that he did ask for uh, after that, which is probably going to get a little bit more attention, is, of course, asking for more military equipment. Uh, so he's requesting uh, different anti-aircraft systems uh, to essentially shoot down planes that are flying over Ukraine, uh, as well as uh, planes themselves so that the, US, that the Ukrainian uh, fighter pilots can fight back uh, in the air. Uh, he did make a big emphasis on uh, needing to take control of the skies. Uh, that's obviously where uh, Russia probably has a little bit of an upper hand uh, against Ukraine, but Ukraine is pushing back and trying to fight uh, to make sure that the, the bombings and that kind of stuff stopped happening from the sky. Uh, another thing that he did mention uh, was he, he kind of said that the old uh, international institutions uh, like the EU and NATO have kind of fallen short of uh, doing what they were meant to do in pre preventing a war like this from happening. Uh, and on that note, he asked for kind of a new international association uh, to really be able to respond to events like this or other humanitarian uh, crises that uh, we could respond to a little bit more rapidly uh, in the future. Now, after Zelensky's address to Congress, several GOP senators held a press conference on the war in Ukraine, and our two Texas senators were particularly critical of the Biden administration. What did they have to say? So Senator Cruz uh, had uh, two complaints against the Biden administration. Uh, the first one that he mentioned was the withdrawal of Afghanistan, which was uh, pretty botched last fall. Uh, if you remember, you know, seeing the images of Afghanis trying to escape on planes, hanging off the side, uh, dangling. Uh, and there were lots of uh, other disastrous things that happened uh, with that withdrawal. Uh, so he said that that is something that emboldened uh, enemies of America. And then the other thing that he did was a little bit of an I told you so moment for Ted Cruz uh, because he had uh, over the past probably six months or so uh, really pushed back against the Biden administration uh, for uh, waiving sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which was a pipeline from uh, Russia to Germany. Uh, there was a lot of concern about that from Ukraine, uh, and uh, Cruz had pushed back that in different ways. Even back in January, there was actually a vote uh, on a bill from Ted Cruz to uh, require these sanctions to go back in place. It was shot down by uh, Democrats and didn't get the 60 votes it needed to pass. Uh, despite uh, Zelensky back in January before this war actually kind of kicked off into the, the uh, full gear that we've seen recently. Uh, before that, Zelensky was calling on U.S. senators to vote for Cruz's legislation, uh, and that was shut down. Um, so uh, Cruz said that those were the two things, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and also waiving the sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline are things that uh, kind of spurred Russia to invade uh, and launch their attacks on Ukraine. Uh, Senator Cornyn was also critical of the Biden administration and said, uh, quote, the Biden administration's timidity in the face of this evil needs to end and end today. Uh, he was very critical of the administration uh, for essentially dictating what weapons Ukraine gets. Um, that could have been a reference to uh, a plan that the, the Biden administration has faced pushback on. Uh, Poland had offered to send some MiGs to Ukraine uh, funneling them through the U.S. in exchange for other fighter jets uh, from the future for, for like F-16s to go to Poland. Uh, and the Biden administration did not want to go through with that plan. And so they faced a little bit of pushback on that. Uh, and then, of course, the administration is also facing pushback for like not giving enough, uh, enough military support uh, to Ukraine. And so those were some of the criticisms that the two senators from Texas had against the Biden administration. And what did the senators say we should do about the situation going forward? 
Uh, one of the things noted uh, that has been noted by Cruz before he actually said this in an interview before the speech on Tuesday uh, from Zelensky, um, he did say that he was opposed to uh, any kind of direct military intervention, such as no no fly zone. Uh, he doesn't want, uh, you know, if the the Polish jets are to go to Ukraine, he doesn't want uh, U.S pilots being involved in that. Uh, he says that it should be Ukrainian pilots fighting for the homeland, that there shouldn't be a direct escalation uh, between the U.S. and uh, Russia, which could spark World War III. Um, and so instead of that having direct military intervention, he does uh, advocate the increase of uh, military equipment going to the U- to Ukraine, of course, uh, like I mentioned. Uh, another thing that Cruz mentioned was uh, something that has also been uh, in the news quite frequently, and uh, President Biden actually did take action on this last week uh, of cutting off Russian oil supply. Uh, of course, there's a little bit of a time window, I think 45 days uh, from that executive order that he signed uh, before it's in, in full effect, uh, cutting off uh, Russian oil imports uh, to the U.S., uh, and of course, Cruz also echoed uh, some things that we've been hearing quite a lot from Republicans of needing to bolster uh, U.S. production of energy. Uh, and one of the things that he did note uh, in uh, his his speech at this press conference, uh, Cruz said that the U.S. needs to be able to bolster its oil production so that we can actually get the, the oil and gas contracts in European countries where those countries might have been relying on Russian gas before. And he wants us to step in and kind of fill that gap so that they're not relying on Russian oil. Yeah. Well, thank you for breaking that down for us. We'll continue to watch, certainly. Hayden, let's go. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to you about a campaign update and move to Daniel for one as well. But let's talk about the lieutenant governor's race. Who are the two Democrats who made the runoff for lieutenant governor? Well, if anyone listened to our marathon post-primary <laughs> podcast, you're familiar with Michelle Beckley and Mike Collier. Beckley, of course, is the outgoing uh, representative from Carrollton who was redistricted, so to speak, out of her district uh, due to the uh, district being drawn to include more Republicans. And she launched a bid for Congress sought to unseat Beth Van Dyne. That district was also drawn to favor Van Dyne and her residence was drawn out of the congressional district she was seeking. So she dropped that bid and sought the office of Lieutenant Governor. Mike Collier is not a stranger to the Lieutenant Governor's race. He ran in 2018, came within five percentage points of unseating Dan Patrick. Of course, that was the first midterm election so to speak, after President Trump was inaugurated. So there was definitely a lot of political energy on the Democratic side, and Collier came pretty close to unseating Patrick for a statewide race. And that was also the same year that Ted Cruz uh, barely hang on, held on to his seat um, when Beto O'Rourke challenged him. But these two candidates advanced to a runoff uh, after nobody received a majority, and uh, the third candidate Carla Braley did not make it uh, to the runoff. Uh, But this has not been necessarily the most friendly runoff, although Collier has focused his criticisms on Dan Patrick, and he is he is focused on the general election. Beckley, however, is fighting hard for the um, the to to win the runoff. And a couple days after she called on Mike Collier to drop out of the of the runoff. Wow. And um you know, I, usually when a candidate is called on to drop out, it's usually because of, I, I think this would be fair to say, it's usually because of some kind of misconduct or alleged misconduct, an affair, or somebody's got financial dealings that they don't, um, that that are under suspicion or, or so, something untoward or, or suspicious is happening. And that's usually when candidates call to drop out. Beckley didn't say anything like that. Her point was that he doesn't inspire the base. Um, but I think a lot of people... Uh, in politics probably would not consider it the most uh, sportsmanlike move to call on someone to drop out over um, to, over simply not uh, over simply wanting to win um, and and so that's that's really the context of of this race and and the backdrop for the most recent endorsements Wow now there are Democrats in the Texas House who've gotten involved in this race who did they endorse well, these 17 Democrats uh, did endorse Mike Collier, and that's notable because these individuals have, in fact, served with Beckley in the Texas House. So 
not a majority of the Democratic caucus uh, by any means, and definitely not a majority of the House. Uh, but Rafael Anchia, John Busey, Terry Canales, Alex Dominguez, Donna Howard, Ana Hernandez, Ann Johnson, Armando Martinez, Terry Meza, Joe Moody, Victoria Niavi, Ron Reynolds, Eddie Rodriguez, John Rosenthal, James Tallarico, Gene Wu, and Armando Wally all endorsed Mike Collier's bid with uh, for Lieutenant Governor. Um, and that runoff is scheduled for May 24th. Do you happen to know if any of the members of the House have endorsed Beckley? Like the Democrat caucus? Not off the top of my head. Yeah, um, I haven't seen any, but I'm not I'm not positive. I, I, I'm not sure. I don't, okay. I don't think so. Um, but definitely, uh, not a list of, of, not a list this long. Certainly. Um, and there's also a difference between, um, you know, to declining to weigh in, um, or offering kind words of support, uh, versus an official endorsement. It can be uh, like used on a mailer. Right. 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 Cause there's, and you know, candidates oftentimes they'll, they'll pull, you know, such and such person said this nice, nice thing about me, but, um, you know, the word endorsement, um, carries a lot of weight, a lot more weight, uh, than just, uh, you know, a friendly working relationship in the past. Certainly a very spicy democratic runoff and we will continue to keep an eye on it. Thank you, Hayden. Daniel, let's continue talking about campaigns. Another update. It's been a few weeks now since the primary election ended and Ken Paxton and George P. Bush moved toward a runoff. Have there been any notable developments in that race? There really haven't been a lot of big developments in this race. Of course, after the primary election, I think everybody has kind of taken a little bit of a break from campaigning. Uh, just a few weeks to, to rest up and get ready for a big uh, runoff race that will sure to be um, pretty heated, uh, especially as we get closer to the May 24th election. Uh, there were, however, some notable endorsements that Attorney General Ken Paxton has rolled out uh, uh, in in his efforts to run for re-election. Uh, the, I think the biggest name on these, these lists this list of endorsements uh, would be Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Um, I guess he had previously stayed out of the race, but after the runoff, uh, he did back him. Uh, of course, uh, the Lieutenant Governor has been uh, one of uh, former President Donald Trump's uh, best friends in Texas, and uh, Trump has endorsed both Patrick and uh, Paxton as well. Uh, another notable endorsement from the Senate is uh, Senator Brian Hughes. Of course, that was the author of the Texas Heartbeat Act. Um, and of course, he's, he's also did, I think, the election bill as well. Lots of big legislation comes from him. Uh, and he endorsed uh, his former colleague, Attorney General Ken Paxton. Um, and then you also had two congressmen endorse Paxton as well, uh, Lance Gooden and Troy Nels. Uh, so those are some notable endorsements that have come out since the primary election. Uh, and I'm sure that we'll see some more endorsements uh, moving forward. We'll we'll see who that comes from, though. Yeah, let's talk about that. What are you expecting in terms of endorsements? Who's come out even in the field of challengers before the mm. runoff was decided? Who? What are we looking for in terms of endorsements in this race? Of course, uh, two people to be watching, of course, are the other challengers to Paxton who are in the race but did not make it to the runoff. Uh, I have not heard anything from former state Supreme Court Justice Eva Guzman, uh, but I have heard uh, uh, from uh, from Congressman Louis Gohmert. He was on the Mark Davis show uh, the day after the election. Uh, giving him his thoughts on the race, uh, which was kind of interesting to, to sit back and listen to, um, because, uh, of course, Gomert was, has been no fan of Paxton, uh, and was very critical of him on the campaign trail. Uh, and it was interesting as Gomer was campaigning, he was not really critical about his uh, other challengers uh, in the race, uh, whereas Guzman and Bush did go back and forth. Uh, Gomer really focused on Paxton. Uh, however, during this interview with Mark Davis after the election, uh, Gomer said that he he did have some some of the same concerns about Bush that uh, Guzman had expressed. He said that if Guzman had been the one to go to the runoff, he would have been quick to endorse her, uh, but he was a little bit hesitant to endorse uh, George. George P. Bush in the race. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if um, if he ends up endorsing someone or not. He might just stay out of the race completely. Yeah. Uh, some other people to be watching, of course, would be uh, Governor Greg Abbott. I, I would be surprised to actually see an endorsement from him in this race. Uh, but uh, it is worth noting that on election day, uh, he was asked by a reporter if he, how he had voted in the primary election, and he did not disclose that. He said that he was going to leave it up to voters to, to make up their minds on who they wanted to, to vote in this race. Um, and then another uh, big supporter of Abbott and also someone who bankrolled Guzman's campaign uh, with well over $2 million, which is 
substantial amount when you're campaigning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is the uh, Texans for Lawsuit Reform PAC. Uh, they uh, did give me a statement uh, explaining that they were still fully behind Guzman. We're looking forward to see how her career goes moving forward. Uh, they say that she'll uh, still play an influential role in Texas politics in the years to come. Uh, and uh, with regards to this runoff specifically, they said that they'll be uh, considering their decisions and, and deciding whether or not they want to weigh into the race uh, in a few weeks. So we'll see if something comes from them. If that does happen, uh, they could potentially go with George P. Bush, which would be a boon to the, his uh, finances for his campaign. Uh, potentially. Uh, I don't know that they would necessarily go in as much as they did with Guzman, but you never know. Who knows? So that will be something to watch. Absolutely. And it'll, uh, I'm sure there are polls in the field. We'll see what happens if they've been talked about a little bit, but mm-hmm. that will, that might also determine the support for a group like TLR that is so heavily involved in incumbency here mm-hmm. in Texas, how they'll jump into something along these lines. Well, thank you for for following that for us. Isaiah, we're going to come back to you. We've talked a lot about the statewide politics around child gender modification, but now new decisions at the state level are affecting individual families. Tell us the latest news about this lawsuit to stop the state from treating these procedures as child abuse. So you might have already heard about a lawsuit uh, filed by a DFPS employee. Uh, That's the agency that's tasked with investigating child abuse, uh, who became the subject of an investigation herself shortly after the statewide announcement to treat these procedures as child abuse. And joining her in the lawsuit, which she's filing on behalf of her of her family, of her transgender child, is a Houston psychologist named Megan Mooney. The mother herself, the, the DFPS employee, is re- remaining anonymous. Got it. Now, what are the general arguments for each party in this lawsuit? Um, this, is, this is where it gets kind of interesting. So the plaintiffs, the psychologist and the DFPS employee, who's the mother of a transgender kid, are claiming that the investigations and the new procedure are unconstitutional because they technically count as promulgating a new rule and so forth, um, which requires this whole process under the Texas Administrative Procedure Act that requires public comment. And you know, there's a whole formal process that they say should take place. Um, that would take place with the promulgation of a regular new rule. Whereas what's going on here, they claim is effectively the same thing. Uh, additionally, they note that all of this, these new decisions are happening without action from the legislature, which as we've talked about often failed to pass legislation criminalizing uh, child gender modification, though several bills were filed. The state, on the other hand, is saying that Paxton's opinion, which argued that these procedures do constitute child abuse, then Abbott's directive that followed uh, to the DFPS, then the DFPS acknowledgement of that directive, all these things actually do not characterize all gender-affirming procedures, which is the term that they use, the state, in their court briefs. They do not characterize all these procedures as child abuse, which is interesting um, given some of the campaigning that's been done on this topic at the state level in the gubernatorial election, in the election for attorney general, um, for the state to take a position that this new understanding of current child abuse laws, <laughs> it's, it's, they're, they're threading the needle a little bit. Yeah. So, um, those are the two positions for the plaintiffs and the defendants in this case. Yeah. Well, Isaiah, thank you for breaking that down. We'll continue to keep an eye on this. Gentlemen, we are going to move to the portion of the podcast where we talk about Twitter things that we find. Um, well, Hayden, I want to go ahead and start with yours. We're going to jump in right in, you know, we're recording on a very special day of the year. Why don't you go ahead and start us off with what you found on Twitter? I just want to point out that I would have totally forgotten that today is St. Patrick's Day unless <laughs> uh, Annie had reminded us yesterday afternoon. Uh, I am not wearing green and I saw a tweet on um I saw a tweet that captured my thoughts on this. <laughs> and uh, this is from uh, Vince Leibowitz on Twitter. He said, I'm one-fourth Irish, and I'm not wearing a single thing today that is green. A, I forgot, and B, my green clothes are not business, and it's a committee day. If anyone pinches me today, there will be consequences. I'm an adult, and I can afford <laughs> my own bail, so be warned. <laughs> and then he put the laughing emoji, which that made me laugh because I, you know, every year I dread all the the threats of pinching if there's no green warrant because I don't have any good green clothes, so... I either I I guess I either need to go find something green that mm-hmm. I actually want to wear 
or just plead ignorance like I usually do and say, oh, I had no idea it was St. Patrick's Day. So, yeah, I'm with you. I'm like an eighth Irish or something. My mom and my grandparents, very Irish folks, and they, my mom was made a name as O'Reilly and we never really cared about it. Oh, really? No. Like the auto, it, auto parts store? Yes, or like without the, the, the Fox News host, without former the first, Fox News host. I'm not No, without <laughs> the first E. So not like the auto parts store. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes, certainly. Um, well, I like that. That's that's a good one. I and don't think I have any Irish is anyone, heritage. Is anyone wearing green here right now? Yeah, I didn't think so. My socks have a little bit of green on it. Oh, do they really? Yeah. Are you just trying to avoid a pinch? Yes. Okay, got it. I like it. Okay, Isaiah, we're coming to you. What do you got for us? Well, I don't know if this counts for our little Twitter section here, because this will develop into a story or an article, but uh, stay rip Matt Schaefer has been on Twitter calling out Citibank for promising to aid employees travel to get abortions if they live in a place where they can't get an abortion at whatever stage of pregnancy they're at. So he's done this in in several tweets, several posts. And in one, uh, he actually posted uh, a section of Texas law, Texas statutes, uh, quoting that it's a criminal offense to furnish the means for procuring an abortion knowing the purpose intended. And this is from the Texas Revised Civil Statutes. So these are old, but not necessarily repealed swaths of law that um, if you go to the current Constitution and Statutes page and you try and search them up, uh, you're not going to be able to find them. You've got to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole. And so in the article that we put out on this, um, I'll I'll post the link to um, the PDF file that Matt Schaefer was able to take a screenshot of. And that file is from the 1974 Statutes. So 73 was the Roe v. Wade year. And in 74, um, they, the statutes are still on the books and because that's the nature of judicial review. There's, there's a whole constitutional law lesson to be taught there about how, you know, deciding the laws unconstitutional does not erase it. It, it. it still exists, but cannot be enforced. And that was the status of the law in 74, which is the year that Schaefer screenshotted. However, if you go to the most current, well, Relatively speaking, most current uh, <laughs> civil statutes PDF, which is from 1984, you'll find a little footnote underneath the statutes, which still exist uh, regarding abortion, noting that the Supreme Court ruled them unconstitutional. So <clears throat> Schaefer dug back to 74 to um, take a picture of the same law that was on the books in 1984, but um, in the picture, there would have been a footnote saying that this is this was ruled unconstitutional. But um, anyway, that that line between like the constitutionality of a law in the eyes of the Supreme Court and the enforceability of the law is a very important distinction with regards to the Heartbeat Act, which obviously you know uh, forecloses government enforcement, but still has a very real effect. So um, anyway, it was interesting. Schaefer had to do some digging for this one, yeah. And, um, it was some very selective digging, but. Uh, as Jonathan Mitchell has noted in the ordinances for the sanctuary cities for the unborn, which he helps draft and uh, in the heartbeat act, which he contributed to <clears throat> Texas has never repealed these statutes. So the laws are still extant, but are not being enforced because of judicial review and Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Wow. Well, very interesting. And we'll, yeah, like you said, we'll have an article out about that. Definitely go to the texan.news to read all about it. Thank you, Isaiah. Daniel, what do you got? I found this really interesting thread uh, <laughs> from this reporter. I guess he works at this place called The Texan. Oh, he's kind of like an obscure reporter. Yeah. He kind of tweets, yeah. you know, random stuff. Random he's stuff. Like, Sometimes it's usually like random sports stuff about yeah. some basketball game and or like something. like the national debt. Yeah. Yeah. But he had this really interesting thread that I found. Uh, and it was interesting because I was actually reminiscing about this with some of my coworkers. <laughs> wow. About just like strange, strange emergency things that happened in 2020 uh, from local governments responding to COVID. Emergency things. I like Emergency the, things. I like that. At, you know, all this disaster power stuff. Um, you know, we mentioned earlier, one of the things that he actually started to start off with, with, uh, the Wiley city council actually, um, or the Wiley city government covering up skating facilities, you know, a, a skate park for high schoolers who want to skateboard. They just brought in a lot of dirt and piled it all over this place. 
which was just like one of the most bizarre responses to COVID. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, there were, there's a lot of other things uh, that we wrote on uh, throughout 2020 of just like city thing by city thing. There's in Laredo, one of the articles I wrote on was the police in Laredo actually conducted a sting operation on women who were doing nail and hair services in their homes. Uh, they had advertised on Facebook. This was against the, the city disaster, uh, whatever. Yeah. Um, emergency things, disaster, whatever. Yeah. We, I'm, we I'm really, really are, great with my vocabulary. We all are today. We're doing such a good job. But I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a list of things here. <laughs> this is a really interesting list, actually. It, it, it actually is. And who, yeah. which, which reporter are you talking about, Daniel? The reporter? Yeah. Oh, um. So people can go check it out. Brad Johnson. Oh, man. Wow, you really kept with this bit for a while, didn't you? <laughs> I'm saying, I, I was waiting for you to chime in, but he's like so he's focused on his attention. game. <laughs> it's a really close game right now. Well, let's talk about this because throughout the podcast, I have bitten my tongue multiple times because brad's over there doing tiny little fist pumps every time something good happens <laughs> he's just over there like yeah i saw him do it a few times and I'm like is he responding to what we just said like yeah, I'm like, no. dang this is fun we're getting like feedback yeah. it's like we have a live audience but no he's just doing yeah. little fist pumps every mm -hmm. time something mm -hmm. good happens yeah and every time it makes me jump a little i startle <laughs> you know I, I love how that that little workplace or the you know our, our wednesday morning conversation coalesced into a, a Twitter feed yeah. or maybe you were already making the Twitter. No, feed. I can't take all the credit. It okay. was our discussion that that spurred that. Yeah, I couldn't, I can remember if, if you had started making the thread, but it was, you know, a needed thread. Yeah. And Daniel and Hayden participated in throwing some or suggesting some of the articles that I posted. It, it was reminding a, me. It, it feels weird. It feels weird that COVID was only, or it only started only two years ago. Cause it feels like, um, feels like it's been longer than that but i just i will never get over the irony that one of the primary uh, comorbidities with covid was obesity and yet one of the first things they did when covid hit was shut down the gyms and fitness centers but keep the fast food restaurants open that's fascinating and so putting, putting yeah wood blocks around basketball hoops it just goes it just goes to the fact that you know a lot of the time when people are in emergency mode um sometimes decisions and this goes for everybody sometimes decisions are not necessarily the most um logically sound but i enjoyed your thread it's a good thread solid thread from that obscure well, reporter well speaking yes. of obscure reporters brad johnson what do you got for us Mine is not nearly as serious as the other two. Um, I will say, however, or the others, you are citing yourself. I am citing myself again. Yes, I did should that last week Should we outlaw this going forward, or should we let it happen? I only did this because it goes with the theme of the day, which is March Madness. So the Athletic, um, online sports publication, they picked a beer for each NCAA tournament team, and as it happens, there are I think six. Seven, seven Texas schools in the tournament. And so I listed out each one that uh, the athletic picked. They, they asked, they picked the brewery and the brewery sent them a beer of choice. And so I listed it based on seeding Baylor, which is the number one seed. Um, the Athletic picked Southern Roots Brewing Company, and the beer they they chose was Straw Hat Summer Day Hazy IPA. I am not an IPA fan, so if that floats your boat, go for it, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to avoid that one. Texas Tech out in Lubbock. The brewery was Two Docks Brewing Company, and they picked the Buddy Hoppy IPA. Houston. Um, Tech was a three seed. Houston's a five seed. They picked the... Uh, Holler Brewing Company, Dollar Pills, Dollar Pills, y'all, Pilsner. Oh, get it? Yes. <laughs> they should add a, another. Should have been Dollar Dollar Pills, y'all. Okay, okay. But they did not miss missed opportunity there. Then UT, who is a six seed, was Live Oak, which I'm a big fan of. But they picked the Golden Gold German style Pilsner. I prefer the Hefeweizen, <laughs> but um, it is what it is. TCU's was Bankhead Brewing, the Adios, I can't say that one on 
the podcast, <laughs> um, a logger. <laughs> okay. And then uh, the um, Texas A&M Corpus Christi, which was in one of the play-in games, I believe, was uh, the Nuasis Brewing Company. They picked the Nuasis original 001 logger. And finally, Texas State, which won their play-in game. Woo. Was uh, for the culture brewing, and um, that's down in San Marcos, right? That's where Texas State is. Yes. Yes. I thought I had it right. Second guess myself. Uh, was the strawberry wheat ale. So the athletic is recommending any of those beers uh, wherever you are in Texas. Um, and uh, yeah, I nice. thought that was fun and ties in with the holiday, as it were. <laughs> as it were. Yes, the holiday that uh, sports ball fans like me and Hayden really are into. <laughs> oh, man. If you guys were to be into sports ball, which sports ball would you be into? Can you stop calling it sports ball? Okay. Yeah, so it's kind of the worst. worst. It is well, the worst. And I, was, and I, I will confess, yeah. I, was messaging, I was messaging Brad while some while y'all were talking, and, and um, I said... I said he did one of his little fist pumps and I was like, so did your team make a goal? And he, <laughs> he replied, actually, in basketball, made sh- shots shots made are called field goals. So, yes. And I said, oh, they didn't teach me that in upward basketball because <laughs> that was my last encounter with sports mm-hmm. was upward basketball when I was probably like in second grade. Hayden. So, I guess if I were to be involved in a sport, it would be basketball, which is humorous because I am five foot five. So, Hayden, I feel like in upward you would get the Christ-like star. I don't know if I should take that as an insult or a compliment because I know that, you know, you hate... Uh, uh, Brad, you're just a rock star. That's all I'll oh, say gosh. about that. You're wow. amazing. That is a rock star. Harsh but fair. He is, yeah. <laughs> Truly. Very true. <laughs> everyone, everyone agrees. Consensus reach. Well, folks, thanks for bearing with us as we stumbled over our words here and there. We appreciate you listening each and every week and we will catch you next week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you've been enjoying our podcast, it would be awesome if you would review us on iTunes. And if there's a guest you'd love to hear on our show, give us a shout on Twitter. Tweet at the Texan News. We're so proud to have you standing with us as we seek to provide real journalism in an age of disinformation. We're paid for exclusively by readers like you, so it's important we all do our part to support the Texan by subscribing and telling your friends about us. God bless you, and God bless Texas.